God had said he would forgive them, he would restore them to their land, and Jerusalem and the temple would be restored. And so Daniel simply asked God to do what God has already promised he would do, to forgive his people, to restore them to his favor, and restore them to their land. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How often do you think about the attitude of your prayers? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of a series titled 70 Years and 70 Weeks. We're exploring the third section of Daniel's prayer, a petition for forgiveness and restoration. The focus so far in this prayer has been primarily on the confession of sin, Daniel's own sin, and especially the sin of his people. And today you'll see how Daniel prays for two things, for the forgiveness of God's people and the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. This week I read an article by Peter Cologne entitled The Story of Richard Wormbrand. Maybe you've heard something of Richard Wormbrand's story. Cologne writes this, in 1945, Romanian communists seized power and a million Russian troops poured into the country. A Jewish believer who had become a Lutheran pastor, Pastor Wormbrand, ministered to his oppressed countrymen while engaging in bold evangelism to the Russian soldiers. That same year, in the year 1945, Richard and his wife Sabina were forced to attend the Congress of Cults organized by the Romanian communist government. About 4,000 people attended this Congress, and the sessions were broadcast live across the country. Stalin was announced as the patron of this gathering. Under that kind of incredible pressure, Many religious leaders from Romania took to the podium to praise communism, to announce their allegiance, their loyalty to the new regime. Some of them went so far as to essentially abandon their faith. Calvinists, Lutherans, and even Jewish rabbis all took turns speaking at this Congress groveling and bootlicking to Stalin and to the communist regime. Finally, Sabina Wormbrand could take it no longer. She turned to her husband Richard and she said this, go and wash this shame from the face of Christ. Go and wash this shame from the face of Christ. Cologne writes, Richard walked up to the podium and declared to the delegates whose speeches were broadcast to the whole nation that their duty was to glorify God and Jesus Christ alone. Shortly thereafter, he was kidnapped by the secret police, and he spent the next 14 years in prison, suffering horrific tortures, brutality, for three years, for example, he was kept in solitary confinement in a cell 30 feet beneath the ground. Among other things, during those, 
those days, those years, he was forced to sit erect with his eyes wide open and listen over and over and over again to the words, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, give up. Sabina, his wife, was arrested as well. She spent three years in slave labor camps. What motivated all of that suffering? What drove them? Well, in Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, we learn that it was the same passion for the name and reputation of God that the Wormbrands exhibited that drove Daniel's prayer and drove his desire for Israel to be restored to their land. In the end, his primary concern was the glory of God just as it had been that night in 1945 when Sabina said to her husband Richard, go and wash the shame from the face of Christ. It's that same passion for God and his glory that should drive our hearts as well. And we see it so beautifully reflected here in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9... God reveals a sweeping prophetic timeline of Israel's history, all the way from the time of Daniel to the very end of the age, and he reveals that timeline in response to just one man's prayer, Daniel. Now, I've noted for you that the chapter unfolds in two parts. First of all, there is a prayer for the end of Israel's captivity from verses 1 to 19, and that's really where we find ourselves and where we'll conclude tonight. We began by looking at the occasion of the prayer in verse 1. Notice it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. The year, as we established in light of that, was the year 538 B.C. What was the reason for Daniel's prayer? Verse 2 says, that in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Jeremiah records very explicitly that this captivity of God's people would last 70 years. In Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, in Jeremiah 29, 10, both make it very clear and straightforward. The question is why? Why 70 years? I noted for you last time that in Israel's calendar, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year in the in which the land was not to be actively farmed. This was required by Leviticus 25. And so God, in response to their disobedience, had them outside the land for those 70 years to recapture the 490 years in which this had not been done. Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21 says, those who had escaped from the sword, Nebuchadnezzar carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Notice this, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. You say, 
Why? What was the point? Well, the Sabbath years were to be the testimony of God's people to their trust, not in their own ingenuity, not in their own efforts, not in their own capacity to raise crops, but in God to care for them. So to skip the Sabbath years was in essence to say, our trust is not in God, our trust is in us. And so, 70 years. How exactly were these 70 years calculated? I noted for you last time, there are two primary views. One of them begins in the year 605, which was when the first captives, including Daniel, were taken from Babylon, or or from Jerusalem, I should say, to Babylon, and then until the first return in the year 536 or so B.C. The second way to, to calculate the 70 years is to begin them at the year 586 when the temple was destroyed and then have the 70 years end when the rebuilding of the temple was completed in 516, 515 B.C. That's how it's calculated. Now, We looked last time not only at the occasion of the prayer, the reason for the prayer, but at the attitudes of prayer reflected in verse 3. And if you weren't here, you can catch up. But just to mention them, there's a a single-mindedness to Daniel's prayer. He's, He's focused. He lifted his face toward God. There's faith. There's persistence. And there is humility. We went on to consider the content of the prayer in verses 5 to 19. It begins with adoration in verse 4. Notice, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he moves on from adoration to the confession of sin in verses 5 to 14. Now, I'm not going to go back through this, but just to remind you that There are, within his confession, these reminders of what true confession of sin looks like. You must identify its true nature. You must accept sin's just consequences. You must hope only in sin's remedy or in sin's only remedy. You must admit God's faithfulness in judgment. And then you must cultivate a godly sorrow over sin. All of that is contained within the confession in verses 5 to 14. Now, that's where we left off last time. Tonight, we come to the third part of the content of Daniel's prayer. It is petition, specifically petition for forgiveness and restoration. That's verses 15 to 19. The focus so far in this prayer has been primarily on the confession of sin, his own sin and especially the sin of his people. But now he comes to the specific requests that he has in mind. Notice verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16, O Lord, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. And then verse 17, for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Daniel essentially here makes two requests. First of all, he asked God for the forgiveness of God's people. He asked God to turn away his wrath and anger. It's really a prayer for forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. And if you doubt that, look down at verse 19. It's explicitly expressed, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. Daniel's prayer here 
really comes from the prayer Solomon offered at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, go back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. Let me show you this. Daniel borrows so much of this chapter from other portions of Scripture that were already in existence when he wrote, when he prayed. 1 Kings chapter 8 is one of those. It's Solomon's great prayer when the temple itself was dedicated. Look at verse 46, 1 Kings 8, verse 46. Let's pick it up in the middle of this prayer of Solomon's. He says, when they sin, when your people sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Now notice, this is explicitly the circumstance in which Daniel and the children of Israel find themselves. Verse 47, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance, which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. So here, Solomon says, if they truly repent, and by the way, if you want a description of what repentance from your sin looks like, you just work through that passage I just read. You walk through the description that's there of what it means to God for you to turn and repent. And anyone who will respond to God like that, God is always quick to hear, gracious to receive, and speedy to forgive. But Solomon says, God, if they repent, if they really repent, then forgive your people, verse 50, who have sinned against you. That's exactly what Daniel is praying in Daniel chapter 9. Oh, Lord, forgive. Turn your anger and wrath away from your people. Forgive their sins. But it's also a prayer for the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. Go back to Daniel chapter 9, and notice that Daniel specifically asks that God's wrath and anger be turned away, verse 16, from the city of Jerusalem, from your city. Daniel reminds God that Jerusalem was, still is, and always will be, as long as this earth remains, God's special city. Listen to 1 Kings. This is, this is a really uh, an amazing thought. 1 Kings 11.36, Jerusalem, God says, is the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Jerusalem is the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name. 
understand that that is not just another city. It is the place where God has chosen to place his name. It is the place that where Abraham offered Isaac his son in Genesis 22. It's the place where David bought the threshing floor when the plague was stayed in the life of David. It's the place where our Lord taught, where just outside the city there, the city wall, he was crucified and raised from the dead. It's the city where the gospel began at Pentecost. It is also the city to which Jesus himself will return. He will put his feet, Zechariah says, on the Mount of Olives, and he will descend into the city of Jerusalem. God says, it is the city that I have called by my name. And Daniel reminds God of this. It's your city. Notice verse 16, he says, it's your holy hill. That refers to the part of Jerusalem called Mount Zion. It's the oldest part of the city, the part established under David. It included both the palace of the king and also the temple area as well. The city of Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. And verse 17 also says, Lord, restore the temple itself. Notice verse 17, your desolate sanctuary. That's the temple Nebuchadnezzar completely destroyed in the year 586 B.C. Now, this prayer of Daniel's fits perfectly what God had promised through Jeremiah. God had said he would forgive them, he would restore them to their land, and Jerusalem and the temple would be restored. And so Daniel simply asked God to do what God has already promised he would do, to forgive his people, to restore them to his favor, and restore them to their land. Those are his requests, the forgiveness of his people and the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. And of course, that implied in that is the restoration of God's people to the land. Now, surrounding those two requests, on both sides of those two verses, Daniel lays out several arguments to God as to why God should answer this prayer. I want you to notice with me the six reasons in verses 15 to 19 that Daniel gives God as to why God should answer this prayer. And by the way, we're going to learn some important things about our own prayers before we're done this evening as well. So pay attention to what Daniel does here. He gives God six reasons First of all, he recites God's past redemption, verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. Daniel reminds God that he had redeemed his people from an even worse captivity than the Babylonian one. God had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, with a mighty hand, with the great plagues of Egypt. He made such a name for himself in Egypt in the 1400s B.C. that in the 500s, Daniel says, it's still talked about. It's still a topic for conversation God had made such a name for himself by what he had done in Egypt that people still remembered and marveled at the Jewish exodus 
hundreds of years later. And Daniel is essentially implying this, God, you can do that again. You can rescue your people yet again in spite of their sin. Understand what Daniel is doing here. For Daniel, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt was an act of salvation which fulfilled the promises that he'd made to Abraham. And in so doing, he glorified his name in the sight of all the nations. Listen to Isaiah 63, verses 12 and 13. Speaking of our God, it says, He caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make, talking about God here, to make for himself an everlasting name. Daniel argues that God should rescue his people yet again based on his past redemption. God, these are your people. You redeemed them from Egypt. Don't abandon them now. A second reason that Daniel gives God for responding to his prayer is God's perfect righteousness. Verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Notice that expression, in accordance with all your righteous acts. That implies a couple of things. It implies, first of all, on the negative side, that God's justice has now been completely satisfied and it's time for the captivity to end. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, Isaiah anticipates this and he writes this, Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God's justice has been satisfied. But there's another idea with this righteous acts as well, and I think it's probably the predominant idea, and that is God's righteousness. The fact that God always does what is right demanded that he continue to be committed to his people and to their land because of his promises. He's saying, God, you have always done what is righteous. You have always done what is right. You have to do it now as well. And your own character and certainly your promises demand that. After all, Daniel reminds him, God, it's your city. Notice those pronouns. It's your city. It's your mountain. It's your sanctuary. Leon Wood writes, Daniel did not claim that God owed Israel deliverance, for the Israelites deserved only the punishment they were experiencing. One might paraphrase the thought, this idea of in accordance with all your righteous acts. He says, one might paraphrase the thought, according to your righteous acts in history, which included the gracious deliverance of your undeserving people, do the same now. A third reason that Daniel gave God for answering his prayer is God's people's reproach. Verse 16, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of a series titled 70 Years and 70 Weeks. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then. Well, Tom, it's truly amazing that God, in His love and mercy, allowed His glory to be tarnished to accomplish His redemptive purpose. Isn't that so? That's so true, Bill. You know, it is our God's nature to be a Redeemer, to be a Savior. And of course, the ultimate expression of God's love and mercy was when He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. That's when He laid everything literally on the line for the sake of those on whom He had set His eternal love. You need to remember, and I need to remember, the incredible sacrifice of the cross when God the Father offered His only Son, His one-of-a-kind Son, as the ultimate accomplishment of His redemptive purpose. God was willing to give heaven's best to save us, to redeem us from our sins, and to make it possible for us to know Him, for all who repent and believe in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.